Bibles tonight, would you, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, just uh, do a little dance. Or use your smartphone and go to uh, Amazon.com and buy one. Either way, you know. (laughs) We'll be picking up right around verse 15, and um, we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 11 tonight, Lord willing. So when you see the time ticking away and I'm only around verse 8 or 9, don't get nervous. You know, that we'll be here forever. It, it, interestingly, I was telling my kids at the dinner table tonight about the young man, Eutychus, um, who fell out the window because Paul was preaching till midnight. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> Second Timothy, or no, First Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. You've heard the saying before that necessity is the mother of invention. And usually when that phrase is used, it's because you are observing the creative use of an object for something other than its originally intended purpose. You know, people using things that already exist to accomplish something else, you know, fitting for the task. And, and oftentimes we see things like that and, 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 and you know, we laugh or we smile. The, you know, we laugh when we see it sometimes. We look at something that is employed for a purpose that doesn't seem to be fit, but it works. And we, we say, wow, that's cute, you know, or, or, or something. You know. Sometimes we look at things like that and it causes us to marvel. We, we see how someone has creatively used something, and uh, we say, wow, that's uh, incredible, you know. Sometimes we see it, and it causes us to experience somewhat of a shock, something that's used for other than its, its intended purpose. We say, that's not what that was made for, you know. I, I'm almost sure of it, you know. And sometimes it invokes a bit of horror, you know, when we see something used for something it's not supposed to be used for, like loading an atomic bomb into a truck off of a loading dock, you know, and, and it causes us to gasp, you know. But it happens every day. We do it. We use things that were intended for one thing for something that was never their intended use to begin with. Now, in many cases, it's creative, it's funny, it's nice, but sometimes it's a disaster. When you use gasoline for something other than its intended purpose, it can be disastrous. When you use airplanes for something other than their intended purpose, it can be disastrous. If you use democracy for something other than its intended purpose, you know, it can be disastrous in the things that it can do. But I think by far the greatest misuse of something or the most damaging misuse of something is when the church is used for something other than what God intended when he designed it. The Apostle Paul has been talking to Timothy about the purpose and the priority of the church that belongs to and was birthed by Jesus Christ. And the climax of everything that he has said up through the first three chapters is given to us here in verse 15 of chapter 3. As Paul, in five words, in the English there's seven words, but in the Greek 
language, there's five words that he uses to sum up and boil down the very reason at the very core and heart of the purpose of why God invented the church. He tells us what it is here in verse 15. He writes to Timothy and he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. He tells us two things in that verse. First of all, he tells us what the church is. He tells us that the church is the house or the dwelling place of God. Now, when I was brought up in a church, you know, not what I would call a Bible teaching church by any stretch, we were taught that it was the building, the building of the church that was the house of God. And so we were to never run through the aisles of the church or, you know, play in in the pews or, you know, hide and seek. None of those things because we were in the house of God, you know, and we were to be reverent and respectful. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that the building or the pews are the house of God, but rather it's the people that make up the church that is the house of God. The church in the Greek, the word is ekklesia, and it means the called out one. And the Bible says that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, that we become the temple or the dwelling place of God. That he moves in and he lives inside of us. And when we're gathered together, there's a dynamic of fellowship that takes place as God moves amongst his people. And that is what the Bible teaches is the church. And it's that that Timothy or Paul is referring to when he says that the church is the house of God or the dwelling place of God. It's the people. So the church is God's people. And then the second thing that he tells us is the intent or the purpose for the church. That is why God made it. And he said that it is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. He uses two words, two adjectives there. The words pillar and the word ground. A pillar is used as a supporting structure to hold something up. In the Roman world, which is, you know, what Timothy and Paul were operating within, that was a staple. There were pillars everywhere in Rome and in Greece and throughout that region. It was kind of the staple architectural symbol of the day. And they understood what it was. It was a beautiful, you know, attention-grabbing thing that was designed to hold something up. The other word that he uses is the word ground. And and that just speaks of the bottom line foundation or that which gives stability and, you know, strength to whatever structure is sitting upon it. And so he says that the church is to be the pillar, that which upholds with strength and beauty, and the ground, that which settles and, you know, binds foundationally. It's supposed to be the pillar and the ground of something. And then he tells us what that is. He says, it's the truth. That the church is to be that which supports and upholds and foundationally stabilizes the truth. That's what the church is supposed to do. We just went through an election season. 
and, you know, it's so tiring, isn't it? Because we get those things in the mail with the smiling people that are with their families, and, and we can't get away from advertisements for people that are trying to get our vote or attain our allegiance, you know, the, the debates, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, propaganda, all of the things that go into an election season. And, and, you know, I don't know about you, but when I go through that, I can't help but start to get the feeling that I'm being lied to. Am I the only one, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know, something about what he's saying or what he's promising, it's just, I don't believe it. I don't think that's really what he wants to do or what he's going to do. I just feel like I'm being lied to when I look at this. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, you know, feeling that way. I believe that every adult human being comes to a point in their life when they just throw off all trust in anything and they just say truth doesn't even exist in the universe i think of the encounter when jesus stood before pontius pilate there on trial just prior to his crucifixion and pilate looking for a way to deliver him just trying to engage in dialogue with him asks jesus and he says are you then a king and the reply of jesus to pilate he says for this cause and to this end was i born that i should bear witness unto the truth and everyone that is of the truth hears my voice and pilate's reply was much like that of us when we see an election campaign or something he looked at jesus and you can almost see the smirk as he looks at jesus and replies and he says what is truth The common sentiment of most adult people that have walked on this planet for any length of time, they ask themselves the question, does truth even exist? What is truth? And for those that are unsaved, for those that haven't met the eternal living God, for them, they've never experienced truth. And for them, there is no truth. But the fact is, there is truth. And that they just haven't come in contact with it yet. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. He made a radical statement. He declared that he is the truth. That he is the answer to every situation, to every circumstance. He's the answer to every question, be it the question of man's existence, man's present circumstances, or man's eternal destiny, the answer is in Jesus Christ, that he is the truth. And those of us that know him, we say, well, amen, we understand a little bit of what that means, but how does that translate into everyday life or into church life? What does truth look like? Well, Jesus said something else was truth in John chapter 17, verse 17. When he was praying, Right before the cross, speaking to his father, he said, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so the Bible declares to us that there are two things, and those two things are one and the same, that Jesus and the Bible are truth. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus, God in the flesh, is truth. 
And that truth is then declared and manifested to us in the Word of God, the Bible that we have in our hands. And here Paul is saying that the purpose or the intent of why the church was made by God is that we are to be the pillar and the ground, that which upholds and sustains the truth, that which declares the truth of God's word. And it's an incredible privilege that we have and an incredible opportunity to proclaim and uphold the truth. It's amazing to me to look around at the body of Christ at large. I mean, how many churches are there in the United States of America alone? And how often do we look around and we see that it seems that the church is embarrassed or ashamed to be the church? That the church almost seeks to be the pillar and ground of anything else other than the truth. To be the pillar and ground of entertainment. To be the pillar and ground of of excellent music or quality presentation. Or the pillar and ground of artful presentation or the pillar and ground of social justice programs, or the pillar and the ground of a mission statement, or of of some pet doctrine, or some cause in some way. And and none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But it just seems as though the church, at the expense of truth, is seeking to identify itself with any of those other things, other than just to be what the church was made to be. And it's as though men have discovered that there are alternative uses for the church. That necessity is the mother of invention. And so the church is a great way. Yes, it's supposed to be about the truth, but it's a great way to gather a crowd. It's a great way to to generate an income and to raise funds for whatever agenda or objective there might be. We can use the church to do that because if we just say Jesus or bring a Bible, then people will come and they'll do what we tell them to do. And so we can use the church to those ends. We can use the church to promote a book or to promote a band or promote a cause. We can use the pulpit as a place of political uh, propagation. And and we can do so many things with this thing called the church. I mean, hey, the ends justify the means. And so people use the church for something other than what the church was designed to be. And the church loses the beauty of what God designed it to be. Is that a place where the truth, the only place in all of the world where the truth can be upheld. We have something that the world cannot touch. The world has something that we cannot touch. We can never compete with the world when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to the arts, when it comes to anything. But what we have that they will never be able to touch is that we have the truth. We have the truth of God's word, and the truth of God has the ability to change a life. We have that as the church. It's what we have been given. And God has intended the church to be a place where Jesus and the Bible are clearly elevated and visibly set in their place. I think about all that goes into a person getting saved. I mean, think about yourself. What did it take to bring you to the point where you were saved? Usually, when a person gets saved, behind them is a path of destruction. There's a ruined life and sometimes a whole host of ruined lives. There's heartbreak and there's, you know, anxiety and problems and addictions and all kinds of things that that get a person to that point when they finally get saved. And, And then after all that they have to go through that brings them to that place, they finally give themselves, they give their life to the Lord. 
And, and they come into a place, they come to a church, and do you know what they need? They need the church to be the church. That's what they need. And I think about my own story, what it was like for me, you know, to come from a place where my, my head would hit the pillow at night, and, and no matter what front I put out there for people to see or what face I put on that people could assume or think that I knew what life was all about, when my head hit the pillow, I knew that I didn't know. And the things that were happening in the downward spiral that my life was taking as I was literally running away from God, losing control even of my very sanity. And I remember what it took to get me to that point where I just cried out and I said, okay, God, if you're real, then I don't care what it means I have to do. If I have to shave my head and wear a robe and be a monk, I'll do it if you're real. And what it took to get me to that point, but I came to that point. And I remember what happened. I walked into a church. And I didn't know it at the time, but the pastor had only been pastoring for about two years. He was in his mid-30s, and he was a somewhat new believer and had kind of fallen into that pulpit position by providence. He didn't choose it. He hadn't been trained for it, but he was the guy that it fell to when the church had been shaken up. And I remember walking into that church that morning. And this man got up in the pulpit and he had a pair of black denim pants and a brown sweatshirt that just said the word Maine across it, like the state, M-A-I-N-E. And he had this big glowing smile on his face and he said, open up in your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel. And he began to walk us through the chapter in Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar set up his statue, six cubits high and six cubits wide. And, and he walked us through, he just read the verses and, and then explained them very simply and then tried to apply them to our lives. And, and there was nothing about it that was charismatic. There was nothing that was polished in his presentation. There was nothing that was deep or instructive or in any way that stood out as anything that someone would say that was remarkable. But I remember when I sat in that church that morning and I heard the word of God being taught and explained and applied to my life, it was like living fire dancing upon the pearls of the verses. And it was penetrating to the depths of my soul and it felt like living waves of life that were just washing over me as i heard the word of god and there was something inside that was saying what you're hearing is truth there's truth in this word and it was the most powerful and beautiful thing that i ever experienced and it's still that way for me to be able to open up the bible and know that what i'm reading is true then no matter how much it seemingly contradicts science, or no matter how much it flies in the face of popular opinion or cultural etiquette, that I'm hearing truth and that it penetrates, it goes underneath the surface and it changes from within. It's the truth of God. And it's what we've been given as the church. In John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, they got into a debate about how to properly worship God. And Jesus ended the argument with this statement. He said, the time is coming, yea, and now is, when those that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you hear that? To worship him in truth. How do you worship God in truth? Well, what is the truth? Jesus is the truth. And the word of God is the truth. 
The ancient rabbis taught that the highest form of worship was to study and to learn the scriptures. They taught that to pray was for us to talk to God and that that is good, that is worship. But that for us to study and learn the word of God was to let God speak to us and for us to learn his ways and that that was the highest form of worship that exists. And there's nothing more powerful than when a church comes together around the word of God to allow God to speak to us and explain to us who he is and what he's done and the things that were and the things that are and the things that will be and to allow those things to penetrate and change our lives. It's what God is looking for. And that's what he says. Well, you say, okay, well, that's good. We understand that. But really, I mean, this is the year 2012. How long can a church thrive on that? How long can a church give themselves to just studying the Bible and and think that it's going to continue to be energized and, and, and growing and vibrant and alive? How long can that happen? Notice what Paul says as he moves on in verse 16. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So his addendum to what he just said about the church being the pillar and the ground of the truth is that without controversy, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, let's untie that from the King James just a little bit. We understand what that means, without controversy. That means that it goes without saying that there's no argument to, to this statement. And then here's the statement. He says that uh, great is the mystery of godliness. That is great. The word is mega. We understand what that means. The word mystery means unsearchable. And the word godliness means the things of God. And so what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that without controversy, the things of God are mega unsearchable. That the things of God are mega unsearchable. That is, that the things of God go way beyond our ability to discover them. They go way beyond our vanishing point. I remember one time I, I was taking a science class and, and the, you know, the teacher was explaining how, you know, because of the curvature of the earth, the, the farthest a, a human being can ever see with their eyes physically, is four miles. And that after four miles, the curvature of the earth is such that it's just absolutely impossible, no matter how good your vision is, to see the horizon beyond four miles. Now, now some of us have better vision than others do, and so some of us might see the full four miles and, and see that point that's marked right there. Others, maybe two miles, maybe one mile, but that's the vanishing point, the point where you can't see any further. And what Paul is saying is this, is that no matter what doctrine or what facet of God's truth or God's character or what concept or doctrine that might be laid out for you on the pages of Scripture, no matter how far you think you can see in understanding, in uncovering what God is revealing of himself, as far as you can see, you know, that's where you go and you put your flag there and you say, that's as far as it goes. But what he's saying is that thousands and tens of thousands of miles beyond that point that the truth of god continues that facet of his person or his ways or his kingdom it goes so far beyond anything that you can comprehend or understand it's unsearchable you'll never get under it in 10 lifetimes you'll never be able to look at the bible and say yeah i got that figured out 
I went through that one and I marked it up and I highlighted it and memorized it. And so I'm done with that. I'm going to move on to the next thing. That it doesn't work that way. That the things of God are mega unsearchable. And then he gives six examples. Six, just right off the top of his head, he just gives six examples of a doctrine that no matter how much you think you know, you'll never wrap your understanding around it fully. He says that God was manifest in the flesh. And so you go and you read Psalm 8 and understand the implications of it. In Hebrews chapter 2. And Luke chapter 4. And you go through and, 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 and you read Rome, or, uh, John chapter 1 about how the Word became flesh. And Philippians chapter 2 about how you know, He became a man. He became, and you can go through and you study what it means that God became one of us in order to reveal himself to us. And after you study all that scripture, including what the Old Testament foretells, and you think, man, I understand this. That's your vanishing point. It goes way beyond what you can comprehend or understand. And then he says, justified in the spirit. And so you read Luke chapter 3, where the father speaks that this is his son in whom he's well pleased. Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus shines in glory. You read Luke chapter 4 and Romans chapter 3 of how he is just and the justifier of them that seek him by faith. You understand the implications of the blood of Christ and the virgin birth and how all of that plays into the justification of his life upon the earth. And as much as you think you can understand about it, you would know nothing. Paul says, the more I know, the more I realize, I know nothing. Then he says that he was seen of angels. And it speaks to us concerning the contrast of Jesus glorified in heaven and then Jesus in human flesh on earth. And, and to try to understand the incredible contrast between the two things. To understand the Son of God in glory. And then for the angels who saw that, Job chapter 38 explains that the sons of God rejoiced in the day of creation when they saw what he did. But then to see him on earth being tempted of Satan and to see him in weakness and in frailty and being tempted and and, and to try to understand that contrast and realize what it means and what it implies. It's like trying to take Niagara Falls and to force that water through a drinking straw. And you can't, and and that's what happens, is that it short-circuits our mind to try to understand, to fully comprehend what it means. He then says, preached among the Gentiles. And for Paul to be saying that, for Timothy to be reading it, for the audience to be comprehending what that means. (coughs) The Gentiles were known as the spawn of Satan. The Jews believed that they were created for nothing more than to fuel hell and to keep it hot. That's what they believed. And so for the gospel to be preached among the Gentiles. Now listen, the Jews almost had it right. Because there's truth in that. The Gentiles really were that bad. But what they failed to realize is that so were they. You know, that was their big error. Not that God would save the Gentiles, but that God would even save them. 
But to realize this great salvation that that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and that that gospel can be preached to us and that God would even go out of his way to care. He then says, believed on in the world. And to think about what goes into a person's salvation. What does it take for a person to get saved? I mean, you think about all the things that go into that. You know, the people that were praying for them. And, And then the part that represents their free will. And then the circumstances of their life that brought them to that place. And then the sovereign and divine election of God that somehow works alongside the free will of man. And then the witness that was given to them by their family or friends or co-workers. And then the seed of the word that was planted germinating and coming to life. And you think about all of these things that go into someone getting saved. And how can you ever explain that? How can you ever understand the mystery or the unsearchable riches of somebody passing from death to life? It's unsearchable. You'll never figure it out. And then he says, and raised up into glory. Speaking of the resurrection or the rapture or the afterlife and the translation from this earth to heaven. This corruptible putting on incorruption. And he says that these things are unsearchable. Now, wait a minute. He doesn't say that these things are unknowable. He says they're unsearchable. See, if they were unknowable, then I would agree with you. I would say, yeah, you know what? Let's put the Bible aside and let's have a concert. Because we can't understand these things. They're unknowable. No, no, no. It isn't that they're unknowable. It's that they're inexhaustible. And here's what that means. It means that no matter how long you walk with the Lord, whether it's the 70 or 80 years you have on earth, or whether it's the trillion years that you live on in eternity you will never stop growing in your understanding in your appreciation for who god is it will go on forever i think of the 12 and how they were in that ship and they were toiling in the storm and jesus wasn't with them in the boat and it says that in the third or fourth watch of the night jesus came to them walking on the sea And they cry out and they say, Lord. And, you know, without going into the whole story, Jesus ends up in the boat with them. He speaks a word and the storm is completely still. And you can imagine being there in the boat at that time and and, and just beginning to comprehend what just happened. Jesus walked on the sea. He quieted a storm And now he's standing here dry and we're all drenched out of breath in the middle of a peaceful calm where there's not a ripple on the sea. And it says that they marveled and they worshipped him saying, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? See, they had walked with him already. They had seen him cleanse leprosy. They had seen him heal impossible diseases, raised from the dead. They had seen him multiply loaves and fishes that had already happened. And yet, even though they had already experienced so much, it says that they marveled and they worshipped because there was something of his person that had been revealed to them that they did not yet know. And that's what the word of God does for you and me as we immerse ourselves in it, give ourselves to the truth. It isn't that it's unknowable, it's inexhaustible, which means for a thousand years you study the word of God person of christ the nature of the father will be revealed to you in even greater measure and it will cause you to marvel and worship and so the things of god are mega unsearchable great is the mystery of godliness now 
The church has been given this incredible privilege of upholding the truth of God's word. And it's our responsibility. It's the grace that we've been given. But Paul knew, excuse me, (coughs) that there would be an attack upon this mission. And that there would be an attack upon the word of God and the the, the ministry that was given to the church. And so he goes on in chapter 4 speaking by the Spirit of God, and he says this. He says, Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly, and that is with clear distinction. The Spirit speaks with clear distinction that in the latter times, and that is that it will happen increasingly, some shall depart from the faith. That is, they will desert or withdraw from the doctrines of the truth. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. That is, that they will yield their lives and give their faith and their allegiance to seductive spiritual voices that have their source from the pit of hell, doctrines of demons. That increasingly, as time goes on, people are going to depart from the truth, from the pillar and the ground of what we have. Because they're being seduced and drawn away by things other than the word or the truth of God. That there are alluring concepts and false doctrines. It's interesting to me that Mormonism has been in the spotlight lately. People asking questions about the Mormon faith and what is the difference between a Mormon and a Christian. In a nutshell, what the Mormon theology is or the Mormon doctrine is that Adam who was created in the Garden of Eden, is equal with or synonymous with Jesus Christ. And that all he essentially is was a man on a previous planet who had been a faithful Mormon and had been given the privilege to now be the God of his own planet. And that's who Adam was and ultimately who Jesus became or Jesus is. And that that is the Jesus of the Bible. That he is nothing more than a glorified, faithful Mormon who became a God. Now that's obviously a diminishing of who God is and who Christ is. And it's a clear elevating of what man will be or what man will become. And what it is, it's very alluring, isn't it? It's very alluring and seducing to tell someone that, hey, if you're just faithful to your church and faithful to the doctrines of Mormonism, that you can one day become your own God. And you can have your own planet. And you can be God. It's very alluring, very seducing, isn't it? Isn't that what Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden? In the day you eat of it, God knows that you will be like him, knowing good from evil. And so she was seduced by the doctrine of Satan. So what is Mormonism? It's a doctrine of a demon. Joseph Smith himself declares that an angel came to him and gave him some glasses and helped him to interpret the plates, and thus we have the Book of Mormon. And, and they just spin off from there, you know. And that's radical. That's extreme, you know. But it's, it's a doctrine of a demon. It gets its source from the pit of hell. But there's others. It's not just Mormonism. We hear about the positive affirmation of faith. That God is bound to do what I say or speak forth in Jesus' name. Now, that's insanity. Well, you say, well, the Bible says it, doesn't it? Doesn't the Bible say that if we ask anything in his name, that God will do it? Well, who did he say that to? 
He said it to disciples whom he had said to them that if they take up their cross and follow him and lay down their lives for his sake and for his cause, that he would hear their prayer and answer them. It's not a general blanket statement that, oh, I can just, <coughs> excuse me, just speak to God and he's just bound to do whatever I, whatever I say in Jesus' name. Let me, let me try that for a second. I, I, I got to choose a good color. Hang on. See, see what, what father would do that? What father would just give to their kids anything that they ask for with no restraint? I mean, that would be the worst edict I could ever make in my home. I would kick myself for a thousand years. I, I wish I didn't say that. You know, why did I tell them I would just give them anything that they asked for? It's ludicrous to think that God is going to do anything that I say. No, he has a will, and he is God, and he's going to do what he will. And so for me to believe or to teach that if i just say whatever i want that god's bound to do it it's a gross misrepresentation it diminishes his fatherhood and it elevates man into something that man is not we don't command god we obey god it's what we've been called to do the demon possession of christians that if i'm struggling with something if i have you know an infirmity or an addiction or something that 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 it's not my fault but i'm actually possessed by a demon that's making me do those things what that does is it gives me an excuse doesn't it i could say the devil made me do it but see the bible teaches that our flesh made us do it I remember one time K.P. Yohannan, the founder of Gospel for Asia, was preaching a meeting and, and someone came up to him afterwards and said, would you pray for me, Brother K.P.? And he said, yes, I'd pray for you. And What can I pray? And, and, and the woman said that, that God would cast out the demon of smoking. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't pray for such things. And she said, no, why not? And he said, because I don't believe you can cast out the flesh. And so many times, the things that we want to blame on a demon, something in our life, it's nothing more than the flesh. And what it does, it diminishes God because it declares that God is not powerful enough to kick Satan's influence out of my life. And he is. He doesn't share space with the devil. When God moves into your life, light has no fellowship with darkness and Satan is gone. But you have a responsibility to employ the power of God to crucify the flesh. Romans chapter 8, it says, If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. So it isn't the devil that made me do it, it's the flesh. And I didn't find the willingness inside to deal with it as God told me to deal with it. It's a doctrine of a demon. It diminishes God, it elevates man. This new doctrine that's going around, that there's no hell. So damaging. It removes every shred of the fear of God out of the life of someone who professes his name. How important is the fear of God in, in, as you go through the pages of Scripture? And what it does is it takes away every consequence for sin. And I can do whatever I want and there's no consequence to it and it just gives me a license to live however I want because in the end, ultimately, it's all going to be okay. The Bible doesn't teach that, but it's alluring, isn't it? It's a doctrine of a demon. And he said, you know, it's a wonder with all of these things going around constantly throughout the church, it's a wonder that anybody even gets saved, you know. Then he goes on and he talks about two types of false teachers that give these doctrines in verse 2. He says, speaking lies in hypocrisy. 
And so the first group of false teachers, those that give away this false doctrine, are those that, that they're lying. They're just speaking forth lies uh, to people. In other words, it's deliberate. They're, they're, they know what they're saying is wrong, but they're saying it because they're exploiting people with the hope of deceiving them in order to somehow benefit themselves. You know, think about the thousands of people that go see a faith healer. Or, or to go to a miracle service because they have a genuine infirmity and a need and, and they have some glimmer of hope that maybe something will happen. And then they go to these things and, and they see these shows and these presentations and they think that something is going to happen, that they're going to be healed or something like that. And, and really they're just being taken advantage of. They're being ripped off. They're being lied to. You know, you heard of that uh, guy back in the 80s, Peter Popov. And, and he would have these huge services where, you know, he would, you know, stand there and, and he would say, oh, now God's speaking to me, God's speaking to me, God's speaking to me. There's someone over here, over here, Gene, uh, Gene, Gene, there, and, and stand up, Gene. And then he would stand for a minute and then he would say an address and say, your address is such, such and such, right? And, yeah, that's my address. And, and you're, you're here because you have uh, cancer, right? You have cancer. Yeah, yeah, I have cancer. And, and there would be this whole thing, and he would do this, the whole thing, and everybody, oh, and this grand show. Well, someone got suspicious. And so they went in there with some radio transmitting devices, and they found out that, you know, there was his wife, this man, Peter Popoff, his wife was, you know, in the back, and she was feeding him this information from the team of people that would greet and talk to people as they would come in the building. And so he'd get all this information, and she would feed him the, 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 the input. And, and they exposed it on, uh, you know, one of those Dateline type of shows and everything. And, and, they, and they basically ran the guy out of town. Well, in 2008, he came back. And he started doing the same thing again, and he's still doing it to this day. And his ministry pulls in $23 million a year. Exploiting the hope and the weaknesses of the people of God in order to enrich themselves. Benny Hinn, they did a thing on Dateline on his uh, thing, and, and basically what they, they had some of his security screeners come forward and under conditions of anonymity talk about how they screen the people that they're going to allow to come forward for prayer. And basically, they find out who the people are that have psychosomatic illnesses, things that aren't real or they're just anxiety-based type of things. And those are the people that are allowed to come forward. But anyone that has a real infirmity is not ever allowed to come forward for, for, for healing and, and prayer and those things. Benny Hinn's ministry pulls in $200 million a year. And for someone to speak a lie in hypocrisy, to put forth as though they have some power or that they are something, in the name of trying to enrich themselves on the backs of God's people, are worthy of the highest damnation. The other type of false teacher that he talks about, not those that speak lies in hypocrisy, you know, deliberately, but rather, he says, those that have their conscience seared with a hot Iron. And these are those that, that, that you know, that, that they actually believe the things that they're teaching. Their conscience has been seared. Now, God's given every one of his people a conscience as a, a gauge, a meter, whereby we can, you know, you know test the, the, the spirits, the things of God. Is this real or is it, you know, something else or whatever? 
And for a teacher, someone who's teaching the word of God, and they veer into an area of false doctrine, the Holy Spirit will move upon that conscience, and he'll say, that's wrong. He does that to me all the time. I'll say something, or I'll put something out, or even when I'm preparing something, I'll go down a road, and and the Spirit will just move upon my conscience, and just, that's not right. Dig a little deeper and check that out, and I'll check it out and say, no, that's that's not right. It's not the truth, you know. Or someone will say, hey, you said this in the in the teaching, and that's not true, and and I'll have to go and say, yeah, you know what, you're right. That's not true, it, because the Holy Spirit is very guarding of the truth, you know. But if I choose to just violate the pricks of the conscience and just go on teaching something that isn't true, and I begin to believe it. Now I've gone into a real dangerous place because the Bible says that now my conscience has become seared and it puts the people of God in danger. And here's why. Because I can come up here and I can speak very passionately about something and you might mistake my sincerity for the authenticity of what I'm saying. It might not be true, but because I'm saying it with such passion and such zeal, you believe it. And that's why sincerity isn't enough. People say, well, he's so sincere. He's so sincere. It doesn't matter. Does it line up with the Bible? Is it what God is saying? Is it what God testifies? That's what matters. And so these two types of false teachers, and then he gives these two examples of false doctrine. The first, he says, they tell you, they forbid you to marry. Forbidding to marry, he says. And the idea there is that it's more spiritual to remain single or to be celibate than it is to get married. And he says that that's a doctrine of a demon. That that's a false doctrine. That that's not the truth of God. And why? Because it violates the word of God. The Bible says that marriage is honorable in all. The Bible teaches that marriage was ordained of God, instituted of God, and that marriage is blessed by God. And so for someone to say, well, that it's more spiritual for someone to remain single, well, that's not what God teaches. That's not what the Bible says. You say, well, didn't Jesus say that there were some that were eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake or some that would be celibate? Yes, but he said they were made eunuchs. Paul elaborates on that, saying that each one has his proper gift from God. Yeah, some people are given a special gift by God to stay single because of the specific call that God has upon their life. But to teach that to be celibate is more spiritual, or that if you really want to serve God in a more effective way that you can't get married, it's a doctrine of a demon. And look at the damage that, that has come upon the Roman Catholic Church because of this teaching that the priests have to be celibate. I'm, I'm not bashing Catholics. I'm simply pointing to the facts. Look at what that's done. It's not in the Bible. That's not biblical. It's not a biblical position. Paul says that it's a doctrine of a demon. It violates the word of God. Then he goes on, and then he says the second one is commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. That it's more spiritual to be a vegetarian than it is to eat meat. Now, if you, for health reasons, don't want to eat meat, that's fine. The Bible doesn't mandate meat eating, that you have to be a meat eater. But, But for you to then cross the line and go into saying, well, but I'm going to be more spiritual and I'm going to eat meat. Now you've crossed the line. God doesn't say that. 
See, and again, he invokes the word of God. Look at what he says. He says, for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So the word of God is what testifies to us that these things are doctrines of demons. I find it interesting the examples that Paul chooses to use for doctrines of demons. Because there were things in Paul's day that were much more egregious to the things of God than what he uses. I mean, Gnosticism was huge in Paul's day. I mean, like a cult beyond cults, the the Gnostic heresy. Universalism was huge in Paul's day, the you know, the preamble for what is today the Unitarian movement, that all roads lead to heaven, that everybody who's sincere, I mean, those things were around, but Paul doesn't use those things. What he chooses to use are things that, listen, invoke the name of Jesus, use the scripture, but then add something to it that seems subtle and insignificant. And these are the things that he puts the people of God on alert for. This is the warning that he's given to us. Look, Hold on to the truth. Because Satan is a deceiver. He lives to deceive. That's what he does. And very seldom does he come in like he did with Joseph Smith and and give someone a new religion. Well, here, let me just give you a whole... He doesn't do it that way. What he does is this. If he can just get you to drift away from the word of God just a little bit. He'll get you hooked on an author, a good author. He'll get you into a series or a set of books or into something that uses the scripture, but that isn't the scripture. And it might be right on. There might be no error in it whatsoever. But, but when your attention is turned away from the word, now it's not hard for Satan then to just move you just that little bit more and to just form in your mind an unbiblical or an extra biblical position on something. And now he's begun. Because that will snowball into something else and and you'll build a concept or an understanding of God that is contrary to Scripture and he's begun his work of just leading you away from the truth. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip or drift away is the word. And that's how Satan does it. It's never all at once. There's never a landslide of truth eroding away. It's always a subtle, careful drifting. Like when you go to the ocean. Remember when you were a kid and you'd go to the ocean and you'd play in the waves and in the landmark, that, that rainbow umbrella that was there on the shore, that was where you, your picnic thing was, you know, and, and, and you would play for an hour in the ocean and you'd look at the shore and you'd say, where's the umbrella? And you'd realize it was a half mile down the shore because there was a current, something that was moving you, but you didn't even know it was happening. And that's what the Hebrew writer is warning against. He's saying, be careful. Hold on to the truth, the word of God. Well, what's the remedy? He says in verse 6, we wrap wrap this up. He says, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. The first thing he says is remind them. Timothy, remind the flock of God that their defense and their source is in the truth of God. That's where it is. Continue to warn and to teach the importance of sound doctrine, to build them up and edify with sound teaching. And then in verse 7, he says, But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. The second thing is refuse that which is 
extra biblical or unbiblical. You know, think about all the superstitions and all of the traditions that people give themselves to. I was told tonight that it's good luck to kiss a stingray. <laughs> Remember all those things about walking under the ladder and breaking a mirror, and if your right ear is ringing or your left ear is ringing, and, and you know, people believe those things, even well into their salvation. You know, that uh, these things, there might be something to that. I mean, just in case. You know. Paul says, refuse it. Refuse it. Refute it. You don't have to kiss a stingray. But you can if you want to. But rather, he says, exercise yourself unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So the third thing that he tells us to do in defense of being swept away in falsity in the last days is to press in. He says, exercise yourselves in the things of God. And then he likens it unto physical exercise. Did anybody watch the Olympics this past summer? And you see those gymnasts or the swimmers or the runners, you know, or the guys that do the pole vaulting, and you just, you see their bodies, and it it does something to you. It just makes you feel bad about yourself, you know? (laughs) But if you think about all that goes into building that physique or that endurance or that ability for them to be able to do what they can do, the amount of discipline that goes into to that kind of training, you know, six to eight small meals a day. I mean, five or six hours training with the perfect balance of cardio and weights and, you know, event-specific type things. And, you know, and then seven to nine hours of sleep, no compromise. And, and you think about all the things that go into producing that kind of a physique, having that kind of, a, a, of shape, whatever goes into it. You know, and Paul uses that and he tells Timothy, now exercise yourself the same way into godliness. What if the people of God served God with the same amount of discipline that an Olympian trains for their event? What if we gave ourselves to prayer and the study of scripture with that kind of discipline and diligence? I mean, I know people and I've been that guy that I won't miss a workout. That, 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 you know, devotions can go on the back burner, you know, responsibilities, but I ain't missing my run today. I'm, I'm getting there, you know. But what if we had that attitude about the things of God? Our prayerfulness, our diligence and service, the preparing of our hearts and our way before God. Imagine what our lives would look like. And here's Paul's point. He says, bodily exercise, it profits for a little. In other words, you know what happens when you stop working out? It takes about a month. It takes about a week. You know, you start losing it and you can't get it back and you've got nothing to show for it. But godliness, he says, is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come is that when you give yourself to the things of God, the benefit or the profit of it will carry you through this life now and it will be with you even into eternity in that which is to come. And then he says, this is a faithful saying. And it's worthy of all acceptation, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially or specifically, is what that means, of those that believe that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. These things, he says, command and teach. Not just you, Timothy. 
The things that I've spoken are not just for you, but these things are for the people of God. And that is this, that the church exists for the purpose of truth. The false teaching and false teachers will get worse, but the remedy is in the word of God. And that the exercise of godliness is never in vain within our lives. And so uphold these things and exhort the people, Timothy, that they would understand. We're the most blessed of all people, aren't we? You see, the thing that makes truth powerful when it's set upon its pillar in its place is that we can set our lives upon it. Truth by itself, what is it? It's like Pilate said, what is truth? But the, the benefit of it is that when we build our lives upon the truth, what can stop us? The worship team can come. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The foundation of God standeth sure, that he knows us, he's with us. Psalm chapter 1, verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. He knows the way that we take. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord and to put confidence in princes. And that famous promise, Psalm 37, the psalmist declared, and he said, I have been young, and now I have been old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. We stand in the most secure and steadfast place of all in God. Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God the pillar and the ground of the truth. May we hold to it and be steadfast in what you've given to us. I pray for each one here, Lord, that our lives would be upon it, securely set, and that your life would be real in us. pray that you would anoint us and fill us as we go. I pray, Lord, that you'd prepare us for the days ahead. strengthen us, Lord. Would you give us your wisdom? Would you give us your spirit? Would you give us your presence? We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.